Good morning, church. How are you today? All right. I mean, that was fine. Maybe you, you know, maybe you're sleepy today or something. Yeah, no? What? You all right? Good. All right. Uh, my name's Darren. It's nice to see all of you. I get to serve here at Fullerton Free on the staff and, uh, One of my responsibilities is to have the opportunity to open God's Word together. We're in the midst of a series. This is week number two in a four-week series called Who We Are. And over these four weeks, we're kind of digging into, like, what it is we're doing here. Like, why have we gathered? Why does this church exist? What's our... What's the point of all this, right? And so last week we started by looking at uh, a speech that John the Baptist gives in John 3. And we talked about the importance of God's people being dependent upon God for everything they have and recognizing that all of our neighbors and friends and everybody we know is also dependent upon God. That we would be people who are deflective, pointing away from ourselves. I just found out, by the way, as a side note, I'm going to Kansas City this week and in a museum in Kansas City, supposedly they have John the Baptist's finger on display. So I'm, I'm hoping to go and take a picture of it? I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. But that's a side note. We talked about John the Baptist pointing away from himself last week and the fact that in our church, that's who we want to be. We want to be people who are pointing away from ourselves to Christ because that's where the power and the transformation is. We also looked at the message of John the Baptist in the fact that he was dedicated to the joy of other people rather than himself and that he saw himself as decreasing in importance and he was fine with that because what that meant was the ongoing increase of the glory of God, right? So uh, last week was mostly about pointing away from ourselves, dependence upon God and deflection. This week, as we continue our conversation about who we are, I want to start by saying um, the elders, the elders of this church, there, there are 10 of us, including Josh and myself, Josh who just shared. Uh, and over the last year or so, we've been in an ongoing process of kind of articulating and defining, like, who are we? Like, why is this church here? And uh, after lots of prayer and lots of conversation and lots of dialogue and whatever, the elders have reduced that down to a, a fairly simple statement. Um, some of you've probably heard this. If you go to family business meetings, you've probably heard it before. But just for the sake of making sure you know, after a lot of prayer and discussion and discernment, the elders said this, and here's, here's this very short statement. They said, Fullerton Free Church exists to reveal Christ. Period, right? Like, uh, not particularly innovative, not particularly creative, not particularly something that you go like, well, I never thought about a church existing for that purpose. Hopefully when you hear it, you kind of go, no duh, right? Because the idea of who church is or the idea of what a church exists to do or what it is we're doing here is not up to us to define, right? It's up to us to articulate in a way that allows us to strategize and cast vision and whatever, But ultimately, Jesus is the one who sets the course for the church. It's his church. And there are all kinds of places. In fact, we don't have enough time this morning as we get into this second chapter of the Who We Are series. There isn't enough time to look at all the passages in the Bible to describe who the church is intended to be. We can summarize it simply by looking at the breadth of what Scripture reveals and say the church exists to reveal Christ, to put Christ on display, right? And and it's very simple, But it actually has a couple of dimensions that I want to unfold with you this morning so that we get a sense not only of who we currently are, but who it is that we believe God is calling us to be. Because that expectation or that sort of now and not yet, that stretch goal is important. I remember talking with my son Hank when he was like, uh, he was probably three or so. And I did the thing. I made the mistake that every dad makes. You know, there's, there's kind of a, it's just an easy trap to fall into. But every dad at one point or another will sit down with their kids and go, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? It's an easy question. You ask it, and, and, and there's a little piece of you that's hoping that your kid will go, oh, daddy, I just want to be like you, or whatever, right? You know, you're kind of fishing for that, but um, I sat down with my son, Hank. He was just a little guy at the time, and I said, Hank, 
what do you want to be when you grow up? And I didn't know what he would say, you know. And uh, he looked at me very sincere. He didn't actually have to think about it very long. He looked at me just like this, and he goes, easy. He goes, when I grow up, I want to be a moth. And I was like, uh, it's not, that's not helpful, right? It's not, like, not even, it's not possible, not helpful. I don't really, like, I don't even know how to help you in that endeavor. Like, there's nothing as a father that I can do to equip my son for potential mothdom. And so I felt a little lost Felt confused about what was going on in his brain, honestly, and uh, maybe discouraged. I think he could sense that because I was like, oh, I don't, I meant like a fireman or a policeman or, you know, like not a bug. Um, but he comes back to me a couple weeks later and he goes, dad, you remember when you asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up and I told you a moth? And I was like, yeah, I'm never going to forget that moment, you know? And he goes, that, that was, that was silly. I know that was silly. Like I, I get that I can't be a moth. He goes, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And I'm like, hopefully this is going to, this is going to redeem the whole thing. He goes, I don't want to be a moth, dad. When I grow up, I want to be a rainbow. And I'm like, no, that's not better. That's not better. That's worse. That's worse. You've gone from like a living thing uh, to like a, a trick of the light. I don't know even how to describe it. Like it's not, not doable. It's not possible. And I felt frustrated for my son because if he's aiming at mothdom or at rainbowness, he's never going to achieve it, right? I think when we talk about revealing Christ, sometimes it feels like we're out of our depth like that. Like it's fine for us as Christians to talk about putting Jesus on display, but the reality is we know ourselves, we know one another, we know the world well enough to know like it might be too much of a stretch goal and we're never going to get there. But that isn't the way the Bible talks about it. And in fact, all of the biblical authors at one point or another talk about us revealing God or revealing Christ. In Ephesians 5, which is uh, the chapter after the one we just read, in Ephesians 5, Paul, one of the great writers of the New Testament, says, be imitators of God, right? Be imitators of God. John, one of the great New Testament writers in 1 John chapter 2, says anyone who claims to abide in Christ must walk as Jesus did. Peter, one of the great New Testament writers in 1 Peter chapter 2, says, for to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus set an example and we, as his followers, are called to follow him by revealing him, by putting him on display. That's what revealing Christ means. So when the elders stop and they go, hey, what are we doing here on the corner of Bastin, Cherry, and Brea? What's all this about? What they're pointing at is what the biblical writers have pointed at again and again, what God has used them to point to us, which is that this life and this community exists to imitate God, to follow in the steps of Jesus, to abide in him and walk as he walked, to put Jesus on display. And we see that as happening in three sort of unique dimensions. And I'm going to tell them to you, but then we're going to kind of walk to it. When we, when we talk about revealing Christ, we see that happening in, in sort of a cycle that happens in three steps. The first step is that Christ is revealed to us, right? Christ is revealed to us. And then as Christ is revealed to us, Christ is revealed in us, we'll talk about that more in a second, and then as Christ is revealed in us, there is the, the opportunity for Christ to be revealed by us, which then starts the loop all over again, where Christ is revealed to people, and then revealed in them, and whatever, we'll, we'll come to that more as we go, but let's just start by talking about what it looks like for Christ to be revealed to us. In Ephesians 4, the passage that we read a second ago, which is one of many we could have chosen as a core text this morning, but in Ephesians 4, Paul there is writing, he, at the beginning of Ephesians 4, he talks about the various gifts that God has given to his people, right? All of us are different. We've all bring different things to the table. And he talks about the unity that we have in these different gifts as God has given us this grace. 
As we get down halfway through Ephesians chapter 4, though, he says something specifically about the giftedness that exists for equipping the local church. And he uses a couple of specific offices. He says in verse 11, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, that's not an exhaustive list of uh, vocations. It's not an exhaustive list of giftings or roles. It's just things specifically that have to do with the gathering of God's people in a local community. And he says God gave these teachers and shepherds, these prophets and evangelists, he gave them for a purpose, right? God gave those roles, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For the record, the saints there, we're not talking about the Virgin Mary. We're not talking about saints the way you might think of them. We're talking about all of us who are followers of Jesus. He gave the prophets and the teachers and the shepherds. He gave those people to the church to equip all of us for the work of the ministry. And in the English translation, there's a comma, but this is all one thought. He says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Building up the body of Christ, right? The work of the church is to do some bodybuilding, to build up the body of Christ, to put Christ on display. And that's why the prophets and teachers and evangelists exist, is to do that work of equipping the saints for ministry, which is that the body of Christ would be built. I think when we think about the body image uh, in the Bible, like there's a metaphor that's used, when we think about body life as it's revealed in the Bible, a lot of times we think of it as just a metaphor about uh, unity and diversity, right? The passage may come to your mind that says, like, not everybody's a nose and not everybody's an elbow and not everybody's a hand and you shouldn't be jealous of one another because each of us bring unique things to the body and we all work together for a common purpose. And that is part of the way body metaphor is used in the Bible, right? That is part of it. But if all God had wanted to say was that each of us brings something unique and we work together, he could have used machinery or he could have talked about a fishing boat or he could have talked about all kinds of things and said, you know, all of you are a cog in the machine or all of you are a rope in the nets or whatever, right? That's not the metaphor he uses. He, he uses the picture of a body. And here in Ephesians 4 in particular, he ties that picture of all of us as a unique part of a body to show that ultimately Christ is our head. So the body life that we talk about, the unity and diversity, right? This, this connectedness that we have no matter who we are, where we come from, is ultimately about revealing not just a body, but the body of Jesus. The church would grow in unity. Here, look at verse 13. It says, uh, these people have been given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he talks there about unity of faith and an an increasing knowledge of God, right? When we say that the first dimension of Christ being revealed to us is just that, that that there there is a reality that God wants us to know him. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That it's amazing that God doesn't exist in isolation. It's amazing that he doesn't just set the earth spinning and walk away from it. But that he is a God who wants to be known by his people and that he wants to know us. The incarnation itself, the coming of Jesus from heaven to earth in a body, was a demonstration of God's desire to be known. In the early parts of John, remember it says, no one has ever seen God, but the Lord Jesus has made him known, right? Why did that happen? Because God wants us to know him. Because God wants to reveal himself. So when we say that Fullerton Free Church exists to reveal Christ, the first dimension of that is Christ revealed to us, which is something that God wants to do. It's something that God wants to do in us, that we would grow in our unity of the faith and in our knowledge of the Son. 
Now, when I talk about Christ revealed to you, I'm guessing that for many of you, when you think about how Christ is revealed to you, it may be very narrow. The methods and the pathways in which Christ is revealed to you, uh, it might be reduced to something that the Bible doesn't reduce it to. For some of you sitting here in this room at 11.11 on a Sunday morning, for you, when you think about, oh, God wants me to know him, how do I know him? The main way that you may be thinking of God revealing himself to you is through this, what I'm doing right now. A human being getting up on a stage and talking for 35 minutes about the Bible, right? And that might be the primary way in which you think God reveals himself to the world. But I want you to know that's a cultural assumption, not a biblical assumption, right? Me doing this thing I'm doing, it's not irrelevant and it's not that it's worthless, but it isn't the only way God reveals himself and it's not even the primary way God reveals himself, right? What I'm doing has value, but it has the same value as, I mean, think about even this morning as, uh, as we stood up in front of you and said, hey, get involved in a small group, get involved in an adult fellowship, do life together. God reveals himself in community. God reveals himself in our praise. When we stand up in front of you and we say, hey, uh, you, we need people to help with fourth and fifth grade boys on Wednesday nights or whatever, right? We're not doing that just because we need to fill roles. We're doing that because God reveals himself when we serve others. Matthew 25 is really clear that we see Jesus when we're serving other people. So when we stand up and we invite you into community, when we stand up and we invite you to participate, to serve, when uh, Josh got up a second ago and said, hey, thank you for your generosity, and we invite you to contribute to the ongoing ministry of this church, we don't do that because we think you have to contribute in order for the lights to stay on. God will take care of that. We invite you to sacrifice and participate because in the breadth of all those experiences, right, service and sacrifice and community, solitude, listening, abiding with Christ, he says in John 15, in the midst of all of that, Christ is revealed to us. Christ is revealed to us in all of it. We just have to have our radar up. We have to have our eyes open to look for the ways in which we see Christ in a broader way. If you're limited to seeing Christ revealed in the you know, 70 minutes of a worship service on Sunday morning, that's not nothing, but it certainly isn't everything that God hopes for you. And it's certainly not everything that I hope for you. I don't want to be the sole place in which you're understanding who Christ is. And you know why? Because I'm just a human guy. I'm fallible. Some of my interpretations are crummy. I got biases. I got experiences that are, you know, whatever. I'm just like you. So you don't want your perception of Christ to be limited to what I tell you. You want your perception of Christ to be caught in the breadth of all of the ways that he reveals himself to us. As a church, when we say we exist to reveal Christ... Well, that's why we have all these ministries. It's why we did a men's barbecue yesterday. It's why our women's Bible study started on Thursday. Why are we doing all these things? It's not just that we want to keep ourselves busy. It's that in the breadth of them all, Christ is revealed increasingly, right? Think about even the prayer in Ephesians 3 that says, together with the saints, that's us again, together with the saints, we increasingly apprehend the height and depth and width and length of the unknowable love of Christ. The emphasis in that prayer in Ephesians 3 is that in isolation, or when you're only listening to one voice, you only get one view of Jesus, right? But in the breadth of a local community, all of a sudden Christ is revealed in all of its beauty, an increasing beauty as more people are added at different walks of life and different perspectives, right? So we say Fullerton Free exists to reveal Christ, right? For Christ to be revealed. And the first dimension of that is Christ revealed to us, that through the church, we are attaining a unity of the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God. But this isn't a pure informational exercise for us either. And so this sort of leads me to my second point this morning. 
If all we're doing here in this life as followers of Jesus is learning more about him, if it's just, if it's just a life that exists to learn more and more about Christ, well, we're never going to exhaust that. But it isn't, that, that would purely just be about information gain. Jesus doesn't say, follow me and I'll help you win at Bible trivia, right? He doesn't say, follow me and I'll give you all the answers for the test. He doesn't say, follow me and you'll know more than other people about religious stuff, right? But there are lots of times when we reduce our followership to Jesus to just being able to state systematic theology or answer the questions on the test. That isn't God's pursuit. God reveals himself to us, not so just so that we'll know more things about him, but so that in knowing more about him, we, he will be revealed in us. Let's keep looking at Ephesians 4. It says that he gives the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That as we grow in the knowledge of the Son, as Christ is revealed to us, then increasingly what happens is we mature into his image. And Christ is revealed in us, that we grow into a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we reveal his love, that we're not uh, toppled and wavered by all kinds of crafty schemes and deceitful theology, right? That there's maturity and a measure of fullness, that we're untossed, that we're honest, we're growing, we're working properly, unity and diversity, that Christ is revealed in us. It's why Jesus in John 13 washes the feet of his disciples, and then he doesn't just say, hey, I've done something nice for you. He goes, hey, I washed your feet so that you would wash one another's feet. What's he doing there? Well, he, he is doing a work of service, but he's doing a work of service that he wants to be replicated, and that replication only happens in community. In John chapter 20, which we looked at not too long ago, in John chapter 20, the night of the resurrection, Jesus busts into the upper room where the disciples are hiding, and he breathes on them. He says, peace be unto you. And in John 20, verse 21, he says uh, to them, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What is Jesus' call here? Jesus' call is for us to do his work, to put him in, on display. When we, think about, when we think about Christ revealed in us, there might be a tendency for you to think about that purely in individualistic terms, right? Um, for instance, for those of you who've been around the church for any measure of time, you've probably heard the big theological word sanctification, right? And when we think about sanctification, what that word means, if we simplify it, is that from the moment you put your faith in Christ until the moment that Jesus returns and we're perfected, we're on a scale where we're increasingly being conformed by the power of God, increasingly being conformed to the image of Christ. And most of us think about that as the whole goal of discipleship, right? That over time, Christ is revealed in me, singular, me. That, that I'm becoming more like Jesus in the way I love, in the way I serve, in the way I talk and give. But what we understand in Ephesians 4 and in another passage I'll read to you here in a second is that it isn't just a singular endeavor. That Christ is not just revealed in me individually as I individually become more like him. There's something really beautiful about the way Christ is revealed in us, and that's the body imagery again, right? The body picture is not just of a really healthy elbow or a really healthy shin or a really healthy nose. 
The picture is of a body that is increasingly revealing Christ together, growing up into the head, the Lord Jesus himself, right? I want to read you a long passage, and you just have to put up with it. I know you might not like that. You might get bored easy or whatever. Put your ADD aside for a second, and I want to read you 17 verses in Colossians chapter 3. And all I want you to do here is listen to the way in which this speaks directly to what we're talking about. Understand that in Colossians chapter 3, it's all plural. It's all talking about us, the church, the body. It's not talking to individuals. And listen to the way it describes taking off our old self and putting on Jesus. Colossians 3.1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, then, uh, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There it is in one verse, right? Colossians 3.10 says that as Christ is revealed to us in knowledge, we are renewed. We are renewed in his image. Christ revealed to us, Christ revealed in us. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I hope you heard it repeated again and again in that particular section. But all of this is about us seeing Christ revealed in us, the taking off of the old and the putting on of the new, having the heart and the mind of Christ instead of the heart and the mind of this world or the heart and the mind that we had before, right? All of these various parts working together. It's the thing that was so lovely about the church in the first century, right? The early church was so beautiful and it talks about it here in Colossians chapter three. It also talks about it in Galatians because it didn't make any sense that those people were together. You would look at the group of them and go, this is bonkers, right? Because you've got You've got slave owners and slaves and they love each other and they're kind to one another and they're serving one another and they're on equal footing. You've got men and women. You've got, you've got Jews and Gentiles. You've got Greeks and Scythians. You've got all of these people and they are a body. And the only way that makes sense is if Jesus is the one that connects it all together. Does that make sense? Right? The beauty of the early church 
was that they'd done away with all of the old hierarchies. They'd done away with all the old cultural pressures. They'd done away with all of the other things that should have shaped a community and segregated a community. And instead, they were this beautiful group of people that made no sense together except that Jesus was being revealed, not just in them individually, but in their community. That's who we want to be, right? That's who we want to be. Fullerton Free exists to reveal Christ, that Christ would be revealed to us that Christ would be revealed in us, both individually as we're conformed to the image of Christ, but corporately, that Christ is on display in this place. And those two things by themselves would be an incredible miracle, right? The fact that God would reveal himself to us, the fact that God would reveal himself in us, that, that would be incredible if that's all the story of the Bible was, if that's all the story of what the church was intended to be, just a place where you come, you meet Christ, and you grow in him both corporately and individually. But that isn't the end of the cycle, nor the end of the story, right? There's a, there's a third piece, which I mentioned at the beginning. And this is important, because for many, again, uh, Christianity or religion, evangelicalism, has become a very individualistic pursuit. It's possible for you to be here this morning, and all you're thinking is, I want to know some things about Jesus, and, and I want to be more like him. Like, I just want to be a better father, I want to be a better husband, I want to be a better neighbor, I want to be a better coworker. so I'm just going to go to church so that I can learn more about him and be more like him. And, and it's not that that would be bad, but it isn't everything, right? And if you reduce your entire thoughts of discipleship to a purely individualistic thing, you miss an important dimension of what it means to reveal Christ, because Jesus wasn't all about himself, there are many who come to worship services on a Sunday and the whole reason they've come is for some kind of entertainment, right? And if you've come here for yourself, you come for some kind of entertainment, you're going to be frustrated all the time because our church doesn't exist to entertain you, right? Our church doesn't exist to meet all your needs. That's not why the church exists. And so you're frustrated if I preach too long or preach too short or I tell too many jokes or not enough jokes or I wear a shirt with whales on it or whatever, right? Because you think that this is supposed to be suited to your individualistic needs. But what we're doing here is about the revelation of Christ. It's not just about your knowledge and your growth. It's about our knowledge of Christ. It's about our growth into the image of Christ. And then there's a third dimension. And the third dimension is, is the dimension of Christ revealed by us. Christ revealed by us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, I love this. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 Peter says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, right? And you might read that and go, yeah, it's pretty cool to be a follower of Jesus. I'm a chosen people. I'm a holy nation. I'm a royal this and that, right? High five myself, right? And you're excited about who you are, right? But it isn't just that you can claim those. Those things are true. Chosen, holy, royal, those things are true. But this passage says you are those things so that you'll do something with them. If you're the kind of person who takes notes, in 2 Peter chapter 9, I would encourage you to circle or underline the word that. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All that's true. So that, or that, circle it you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has chosen you. He's adopted you. He's appointed you. He has called you. He's revealed himself to you and he's revealed himself in us so that we would declare the excellencies of, of him who took us out of the darkness and into his light. The third dimension is that Christ is revealed by us. That as Christ is revealed increasingly to us through a, a, a multitude of ways, Christ is revealed in us both individually and corporately, that then the third stage of that cycle is that we reveal Christ. 
to our coworkers, to our children, to our parents, to our neighbors, that, that when they meet us, they know Christ. They understand who Christ is. That's why in Acts 1.8, Jesus will say, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, he says, all the authority has been given to me. Therefore, as you go, make disciples, right? Disciples, what are disciples? They're just followers. They're people that, as Christ has revealed to them, Christ has revealed in them and Christ has revealed by them. He says, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Jesus himself understood that it wasn't just about you understanding who he was and seeing him made manifest in your life, that it was about us then collectively and corporately putting Jesus on display at the corner of Baston, Cherry, and Brea. Why does this church exist? Fullerton Free exists to reveal Christ. That as Christ is revealed to us, Christ is revealed in us, and then Christ will be revealed by us. And then the cycle starts again, because as Christ is revealed by us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, family, people who don't know Jesus, Christ is revealed what? To them, through us, and then in them, and then by them to their neighbors, and then to them in, the, in their neighbors. It just, it just keeps going. That, that is the picture of why the church exists. It says in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Right? I love this picture. Uh, it doesn't matter. You know, you, you've got your credit card debt, what your ledger looks like at home, your, your mortgage or whatever. What the Bible says here is you shouldn't owe anybody anything, but you will always have a debt that exists. Like it's never going to go away. And the ongoing forever debt that you will have is a debt of love owed to your fellow man and woman. That's ne- that will never be exhausted or extinguished. He says, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment, they're all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour, uh, besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer now to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Why why do we take all these things off? Because they don't look like Jesus. Why do we get rid of the works of darkness in our life? Why do we work to take those things off and to put on love and kindness and generosity and care and compassion? Because one looks nothing like Jesus and one looks everything like Jesus, right? He says in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the very same principle we're talking about this morning. Why do we exist? To reveal Christ. Who are we? We are the revelation of Christ. That as Christ is revealed to us, he will be revealed in us and then revealed Bias. Now, there are a couple of considerations I want you to think about as we, as we sort of wind down here this morning. The first one is this. In, when it comes to revealing Christ, we've got our work cut out for us. We've got our work cut out for us because there are many in this world who only have a marred view of what, of what Christ is like. Uh, my, I've told some of you this story before, but I got this weird call from my wife a few years ago. And she goes, hey, you've got to come home from work because the kids are doing something weird. My daughter, Lily, and my son, Will, were both small and they were home. So I went home and I was like, what's going on? 
And she goes, well, I was looking out the kitchen window and I saw Lily when she, and she was like four at the time. I saw Lily and she had our big family Bible and she was chasing her brother, Will, who's two years younger than her. She's chasing him around the yard. And every time she catches him with this Bible, she hits him with the Bible and she says, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. She goes, so I was like, woo. So I stopped what I was doing and I went outside and I kind of broke up the fight, you know, and I was like, what are you doing? Number one, why are you hitting your brother? First of all. Number two, why are you using the Bible as a weapon? That's awful. We don't ever tell people they're going to hell. Like, that's such an ugly thing to say. Like, why are you doing this, you know? And she said, both my kids uh, looked at her kind of bewildered. And they were like, we don't know why you're mad. Like, we were just playing mean Jesus. And she's like, what? That's no, there's no such game as mean Jesus. It's not a game. I'm calling your dad. So she called me. I came home and I gave them the same speech she'd already given them. Like, hey, we don't hit our brother and we don't use the Bible as a tool for destruction. And we don't damn people as best we can, you know. And uh, as I was thinking, they, they were responsive to it. But as I was thinking about it, it dawned on me at the time. And I think about this a lot still. You know, when, I, when I'm uh, interacting with my neighbors here in Fullerton, there's a moment that happens in almost every conversation, whether I'm at the Circle K or I'm at the AT&T store, or if I'm at a restaurant or whatever, I can be talking to people, having a great conversation with my neighbors. And then at some point they find out I'm a pastor. They find that I work here at Fullerton Free and I can visibly see a change in people's countenance. Like their eyes kind of glaze over. I can tell all of a sudden they kind of want to get away from me. And uh, I thought about it and, I, and I, I know why that happens. I know what happens because when I tell people that I work at a church, um, Many, many times what they imagine is mean Jesus. What they imagine is someone who's going to grab a big Bible and chase him around the yard. And when he catches up to him, he's going to hit him over the head and tell him they're going to hell. And what's weird about that, you guys, is, is uh, mean Jesus does not exist in the pages of this book. I know this is an iPad, but you know what I'm saying. Mean Jesus isn't in the Bible. He's not there. There are times where Jesus gets angry, but he only gets angry at, at religious hypocrites, Right? So, so why is it that the guy at the AT&T store, the people at Circle K or in local restaurants, why is it that they, that they kind of want to get away from me? Why is it that they think of mean Jesus? It's not because mean Jesus is revealed in the Bible. You know why they think it? It's because we've revealed mean Jesus. They, they believe that about Christ because we've put mean Jesus on display. But it's not, it's not hopeless because we have the opportunity to repair the image of Christ we have the opportunity to reframe people's perception of who Jesus is in every interaction. In every interaction, we have the opportunity to reframe people's picture, to repair the image of Jesus in our world. That is why Fullerton Free exists, to reveal Christ, and not just to reveal him, but to reveal him accurately. Now, the other consideration I want to put in front of you this morning is this. I'm guessing that as we talk about revealing Christ, there are some of you who feel like, um, you probably feel a little bit like I felt when Hank said he wanted to be a moth. And maybe you feel like the revelation of Christ is not something you can do. Maybe that's something for theology professors. Maybe it's something for professional Christians, people who post Bible verses on their Facebook or whatever, right? And I think for many of us, when we start to think about, about revealing Christ, having Christ revealed to us in us and by us, we feel out of our depth because we know our own brokenness, don't we? Because we know our mistakes, we know how often our, we lose our tempers, or we know how often we've mismanaged the money, or how often we've, we've, we've failed and fallen, and how broken we are, and how obvious that becomes. And so all we can think about many times is the ways in which we will certainly mar the image of Christ if you give us enough time, and therefore we opt out entirely. Here's what I want to say to you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you feel ashamed about or guilty about. When God chose you, 
God chose you. He knew that part of the way he would reveal himself in you is through your fumbling, through your brokenness, through your mistakes. And the only catch is just don't pretend like they're not there, right? I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like to feel the pressure of people who are telling you what a pastor looks like or what a Christian looks like or what a good disciple looks like. Uh, Trust me, I hear it all the time, right? You guys feel the same scrutiny. Sometimes it's not even audible. Sometimes it just comes through social media or sometimes it comes through uh, interactions with people and you just feel so incapable of revealing Christ. Can I tell you that you are exactly the right people to reveal Christ because Christ chose to reveal himself through us in our brokenness. Second Corinthians chapter four says this, verse seven. We, that's us, we have this treasure. The revelation of Christ is treasure. Jesus, the gospel is treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay. In the first century, jars of clay were like paper plates. It was like a throwaway, right? It's like a, a thing, it's dispensable. We have treasure on a paper plate. That's what our that's how our lives are described in Ephesians chapter or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have treasure on a paper plate. But here's what it says. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is that a paper plate, our lives in all of their fumbling and brokenness, is the perfect place to put treasure on display. So no matter who you are, no matter how you might try and opt out of that, let me just say that this is who we are. Who are we? Who are we? We are here. We exist. This church on this corner exists to reveal Christ, to see Christ revealed to us, to see Christ revealed in us individually and corporately, and that Christ would be revealed by us and that the cycle would repeat. So how do we begin? And this is, this is how I'll finish. I, I just want to remind you that, that you look like the, the one you spend time with. You look like the one you spend time with. Even at the men's uh, barbecue, the steak fry yesterday, I just read a thing out of Acts where it says that um, the Jewish leaders looked at John and Peter and they were amazed because they just seemed like common guys. But what was astonishing about them was they had spent time with Jesus. You're trying to figure out how to reveal Christ in your workplace or around your kitchen table or in your neighborhood. You're trying to figure out how to reveal Christ in this city. The way you begin that is by spending time with Jesus. You cannot possibly reveal someone you don't know very well. Brennan Manning used to say that most Christians are like half-hearted travel agents handing out brochures to places they've never been. Right? I like that. That's true, right? Half-hearted travel agents handing out brochures to places they've never been. You want to reveal Christ Fullerton free? You have to get to know him. And 70 minutes on a Sunday morning, it's not nothing, but it's not enough. And that's not to shame you. It's not to guilt trip you. But I'm saying, like, open up your Bible at the kitchen table, right? Spend some time in community. Get in a small group, right? Not because we need to fill up our small groups, but because Christ will be increasingly revealed to you the more you pursue him, the more time you spend with him, Right? So you're looking for a place to begin, begin by drawing near to Christ and praying for him to reveal himself to you in the breadth of the way he does that, right? Engage in that activity. And then the final thing I'll say is this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much Bible college you've done, how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how much theology you know. Everybody in the room, everybody in the room can have dinner with outcasts. Jesus did that. You want to look like Jesus? Have dinner with outcasts. You know some outcasts? You probably do. You probably try not to talk to them right now. Have dinner with them instead. Everybody in this room can wash feet. 
All of us. It's kind of gross, but Jesus did it and he called us to it. How about don't even worry about actual foot washing. Maybe just think about what it looks like to surrender your life for the good of someone else. We talked about that with John the Baptist last week. There isn't a single human being on the planet who doesn't love it when somebody else does the dishes. There's not a single human being on the planet who doesn't love it when somebody else takes in the trash cans or mows the grass. You want to figure out how to put Jesus on display starting today, no matter what you know or where you're from or what it's looked like in the past. You want to start revealing Christ today? Just lay down your life for someone else. That's the clearest, easiest way to begin looking like Jesus as he's revealed to you, and he'll reveal himself more to you, even in service and sacrifice, that he would be revealed in you and in us and then revealed by us in the days ahead. That's our prayer. That's who we are. This church exists to reveal Christ. And this is how we're going to do it. Will you pray with me? God, I, I pray that you would... I, there's some things in this message that are convicting to me. Um, and there, I, I, I'm guessing there are some things in this message that are convicting to the folks in this room. But my prayer as I close is this. I pray that we wouldn't lose the things that, that we need to work on, that we wouldn't forget those, but that we would walk away from this idea of revealing you in our world with a sense of excitement and joy, a sense of jubilation and like passion for what, what God could do with a group of people in a city like this one if everybody was committed to taking off their own life and putting on yours. God, I pray that you would stir in us a joy and excitement and exuberance for that endeavor. Even in the midst of some of the other things we got, we got to figure out. God, I pray that we would walk out of this place today excited about the fact that you reveal yourself to us, you reveal yourself in us, and that you've chosen to reveal yourself by us and through us. We love you for including us. We praise you and we worship you now together. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.